Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. The master's plan. So what we're going to do is we're just going to go verse by verse through the New Testament book of Ephesians starting today. The master's plan takes us through the New Testament book of Ephesians. So if you have your Bible, open them up to the New Testament. You're going to get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'll get to Acts and Romans. And then there will be a letter to the Corinthians. And then after that, there will be four books. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. The way I remember that as a kid is the acronym for that is go eat popcorn. So if you take nothing else from this message today, you just write down the words, go eat popcorn. And when you think about popcorn later today, you'll know that Ephesians is the second book in that little four uh, letters that Paul writes to different followers of Jesus Christ. Paul is writing this letter from prison, but earlier in his life, he had spent time in Ephesus. Ephesus is in what is now known as modern-day Turkey. So you can kind of see from the map there, there's Greece and Athens in the upper left portion of the map. Uh, Turkey is represented uh, where Ephesus is. And this is the start of Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, He traveled from Antioch to Ephesus. We'll talk about that a little bit more here in a minute. Ephesus is um, a city that was central for worship, but not for followers of Jesus Christ. It was a central of worship for both Roman and Greek gods. Uh, Chief among them, uh, the place of worship was the Temple of Artemis. This is an artist rendering of what the temple of Artemis would have looked like. This is one of the seven wonders of the world. This was the center of worship for people in this area. They worshipped the goddess Diana, and in doing so, it contained a lot of incredible, incredibly deplorable acts they would do in the name of worship. And so if you lived in this area, the temple of Artemis was a central hub you would go to in part of your worship. How Paul got to Ephesus is really interesting. We won't take the time to unpack it completely, but if you look at Acts chapter 19, later this week, Acts 19 actually goes through how Paul ended up in Ephesus. He meets some sincere followers of Jesus Christ. They had heard of the teachings of John the Baptist. And Paul tells them the beautiful story of who Jesus is. Years later, after being imprisoned by the Romans, Paul ends up writing this letter to these Ephesians based on his time there and what has transpired since. Now, Paul's letter to Ephesus was not written to address a certain problem. Oftentimes in the New Testament, for instance, if you look at the book of 1 Corinthians and the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing that church for a very specific list of issues. Uh, When he writes uh, Timothy and Titus, there is a very specific thing happening in those men's lives in both Ephesus and Crete and where they were pastoring. So he addresses some very specific problems in those letters. When we get to the book of Ephesians, there's not a specific problem. And so what we end up finding is Paul writes this letter and he starts giving them the central truths of our faith, namely the gospel and what is the gospel? How does it fit into God's master plan? How does our life fit into 
God's master plan. So as we look at the book of Ephesians, we're going to notice there's two sections. The first sections uh, run us through the first three chapters of Ephesians, and we're going to see the beauty and the majesty of the gospel defined. We'll see the master's plan unveiled, and Paul takes very careful attention in the first three chapters to explain what the gospel is, who Jesus is, and why it's central to our faith. And then when we get to the second section, chapters 4, 5, and 6, we see the impact of the gospel in our lives. It's very interesting. Oftentimes when I'm reading through, uh, especially in the New Testament, when I'm reading through Scripture, I'll look for all the commands in Scripture. We've talked about this before. The commands in a portion of Scripture anchor the portions of Scripture that we read. And when you look at the book of Ephesians, there's almost no commands given to us until chapter 4. Because for the first three chapters, Paul is laying out what it looks like to embrace the gospel for what it is. And then chapter 4 and 5 and 6, this is how the gospel impacts your life. This is how it impacts how you parent. This is how it impacts how you should have employees under your care. How you should work under employers. This is how it looks like to be a part of a church family. This is how it looks like to love your neighbors. But for the first three chapters, Paul simply explains the beauty and the majesty of the gospel. Central to this study is this. If the gospel doesn't impact your relationships, it has no impact at all. If the gospel doesn't impact your relationships, it has no impact at all. This is not a portion of scripture that uh, is easy for us to grasp, but it's challenging. But what Paul really drives home is this. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and if you've embraced the gospel into your life, it should impact every one of your relationships. It should impact how you love your spouse. It should impact how you go to church. It should impact how you work. It should impact how you treat others. The gospel should have an impact on your life. Otherwise, Sunday at 1030 is a glorified social club. It's a place where we get to come and we get to go and everything stays within this hour and a half that we gather and yet Paul says we're designed for so much more. The gospel should impact every part of our life. So we begin reading his study in Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 1. This is what it says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew the essential place that grace and peace have on the life of the believer. It's interesting as you, as you look through these verses, it's very clear. Paul takes very careful attention to call the followers of Jesus Christ the faithful in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful way to refer to God's people? The faithful in Christ Jesus. As you read through the New Testament, you'll notice this is Paul's uh, most often repeated phrase, in Christ. He was captivated by this thought that we as followers of Jesus Christ were in Christ, were in his family, were in his care. And then this is his common greeting he gives every single person. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Lord Jesus Christ. We're back one slide, Linda. Grace and peace 
to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 2. Paul knew the essential place that grace and peace had in the follower of Jesus Christ. This morning I was curious while I was getting ready in the office, I looked at um, every single other letter that Paul wrote in the New Testament. It's always grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. When, he's, when he was writing to Timothy, who was a young man in a difficult position, he put grace, mercy, and peace, but still grace and peace. Every single time he said grace and peace, and I believe it leads us to this fact that receiving grace comes before experiencing God's peace. Receiving God's grace comes before experiencing God's peace. If you are trying to find God's peace without understanding and embracing God's grace, you will end up frustrated because it's a futile attempt. You'll become angry. You might even become bitter with God because God's grace comes before God's peace. And the peace of God exists where the grace of God already lives. It's an amazing thing that every single time that Paul addresses followers of Jesus Christ, he wants them to understand, boy, the peace of God comes where the grace of God already is. The grace of God comes before the peace of God. Now, what follows in verse 13 to 14 is beautiful poetic language from Paul. In fact, if you look at the, old, uh, the New Testament Greek, the original language it's written, verse 3 to 14 is one sentence. It's one poetic sentence. It's a poem. It's, it's Paul taking poetic license and writing this beautiful poem to praise God for what he's done. So this morning, let me read it to you in one breath. Just kidding. I'm not going to do that. But I am going to read verse 13 to 14. And if you have your Bibles, look at it. If not, just listen to the words Paul uses to put praise on Jesus' name. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered us his kindness on us, along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mystery his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan, that at the right time, he will bring everything under the authority of Christ. Everything together in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance and he makes, him, makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. 
And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did so that we would praise and glorify him. In these verses, we are unveiled the master's plan as Paul describes it. And as we look as the master's plan today, we'll see first the work of God the Father. The work of God the Father. Paul's going to make very specific reference to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so this is the Trinity, the idea that God has three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Ghost. First, the work of God the Father begins in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul recognizes clearly and states emphatically that all glory, honor, and goodness goes to God the Father. He says, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. But if you had in the habit of marking your Bibles, I would mark those four words, who has blessed us. Everyone say the word us. That includes us. How beautiful is that? I want you to think about the Ephesian church. We talked about the Roman and the Greek worship that, hemp, that happens at the temple of Artemis. The, the unholy acts that they would do in the name of worship to the goddess of Diana. And so you had people who had grown up in that culture who had worshipped Diana now coming to Christ. You had both Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers together finding Christ, finding meaning and significance in this life and hope in the next life. And when they gathered together I want you to think about Romans and Greeks and Jewish people gathering together, worshiping Christ. And Paul has the audacity to say, he blessed us. How beautiful to know that wherever you are from, you are included in God's master plan. The master plan includes you. God has blessed you. And he says here in verse 3, he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Those blessings are ours, and it's a good opportunity, a necessary opportunity for us to thank God for the enormity of every spiritual blessing. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. It's in your notes for you to refer to. He said this, If you think little of what God has done for you, you will do very little for him. But if you have a great notion of his great mercy to you, you will be greatly grateful to your gracious God. I love how Charles Spurgeon says, if you think little of what God has done for you, you then will do little for him. And I want to challenge you this morning to think about the enormity of God's great blessing on us. Paul says, praise be to God, the, the source of all good things who has blessed us and every spiritual blessing from the heavenly realms. He talks about these heavenly realms and the spiritual blessings, and in it he addresses both the kinds and locations of blessings. He talks about spiritual blessings, which we can infer are greater than material blessings. Material blessings are nice because we see them and we feel them and we can touch them and we can spend it, right? 
No, but Paul says he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. The problem with material blessings is because we can touch it and feel them and spend it, they're temporary in nature. He talks about these blessings being from the heavenly realms, and so they're higher and better and more secure than our earthly blessings. And what Paul is driving at is there is something in us that is designed for more. What ends up separating us from the animals, uh, I, I pause to say this, but uh, animals are designed to eat, to drink, to poop. Everyone poops, right? <laughs> to reproduce. Animals eat, drink, they poop, they reproduce. They entertain themselves. What ends up separating us from animals is we are created for more. We're created for relationship. Uh, Ecclesiastes says this, God has said, set eternity in our hearts. In other words, we're designed for more. We're designed for relationship. If anything, the last year has taught us during the pandemic is this, we crave relationships. We need it. And when we're forced to be in a situation where we can't have those relationships, our lives end up suffering. And we are made for much more because we are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God to image Him. We are statues and bearers of His image. And in being images, every spiritual blessing resides in us from the heavenly realms. He goes on to say in verse 4, He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. Again, if you're in the habit of marking your Bibles, I would mark those words, He chose us. And maybe next to that phrase, you can put, that's me. God has chosen you. Before you could ever think of reaching out to him, he chose you. And he likewise gives us the opportunity to choose him. In verse 4, he tells us the reason he chose us. We read on, he says, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Why? Look at verse 4, to be holy and blameless in his sight. We are saved not only for salvation, but for holiness. This idea of holiness means we have been now set apart. Something that is holy has been set apart because it's sacred, because it's special, because it has significance, it has meaning. The reason we call them holidays is because we take the two words holy and day and we say these are holy days, these are holidays. And the reason why they're holidays is we don't celebrate the 4th of July every year. Why? Because we have one day we've set apart to celebrate it. We don't celebrate Thanksgiving every day because why? We have a day that we've set apart for it. And what Paul is asking us to consider is that he has chosen us, God has chosen us before the very creation of the world so that we would be set apart. We would be special. We would be sacred. Also blameless in his sight. We read on, he says, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Boy, this morning, we want to say loud and clear that through Jesus, anyone can be adopted into the family of God. 
Isn't that a wonderful truth? Anyone can be adopted in the family of God. The reason I'm so glad for that, because anyone includes me. It includes you. You have a son or daughter that you are worried about, it includes them. You have parents, you're wor- it includes them. You have people in school or classmates or employers or employees, and you're not quite sure they're included. Anyone can be adopted into the family of God. That word adoption is used so specifically in the New Testament. And the beauty of adoption is this. In Roman law, when the adoption was complete, it was complete fully. The person who had been adopted had all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family. And they completely lost all the rights to his old family. I want you to think about the implications of that. That in Roman law, that when a uh, adoption was finalized, the person that was being adopted now got full rights as if they were sons and daughters of that family. And a part of that adoption means they left all the former uh, family behind and they were no longer obligated and they were no longer able to have any of the inheritance of the old family. This is why it's so powerful that when God says we've been adopted into his family, church, what he's saying is this, we get all the rights of being part of the family of God and fully we relinquish the old. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. In the eyes of the law, that person has become a new person. So new was he that even all debts and obligations and connections with his previous family were abolished as if they've never existed. So through Jesus, anyone can be adopted into the family of God. We read on in verse 5 and verse 6. It says this, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. And the reason why he is pointing out the word sonship, and it might get a little hard in our current context to understand why sonship is mentioned and not daughtership. Paul's not being callous. He's not being a chauvinist. What he's trying to get us to understand is in the Roman culture, sons had rights to inheritance. Sons had full rights of the family. And what he's saying is as, a, as a man or as a woman, regardless how you come to Christ, you get full sonship. You get the full inheritance. You become a part of the family of God fully. He says adoption is sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. This points us to this new life, this transformation. You see, God's master plan for us not only includes salvation, but also this personal transformation that has a confident relationship with God the Father. This is the work of God the Father. We move now to the work of God the Son, beginning in verse 7. The work of God the Son in verse 7. He says this, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. What Paul is asking us to consider is there is no possible redemption outside of Jesus and his redeeming blood. 
This idea of redemption always implies a price being paid for the freedom that is purchased. Redemption here is an ancient Greek word called lutroo. It means to liberate on the receipt of a ransom, to buy back. The redemption and forgiveness comes to us according to the measures of God's riches. So it's not a small redemption or forgiveness won by Jesus on the cross. It is according to the measure of his riches, which means it's an immense, immense redemption. Verse 9, we continue. He says this, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This is the beauty of the work of both God the Father and God the Son is that the goal was this in verse 10 to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. If you're following in your notes, God's great plan and purpose, which was now hidden, is now revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And so God calls us to consider the greatness of God's plan for the ages and our place in that plan. Here's the beautiful thing we read on in verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who marks out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Part of the mystery revealed is this. Jesus is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. And God wants to unify all things in our lives under him. Our personal lives and our spiritual lives were never meant to be separate. Let me say that again. Our, our personal lives and our spiritual lives were never meant to be separate. We have a growing uh, trend in Christianity and in living out our faith where we put some things on the Sunday morning shelf and we put everything else on the rest of our other shelves. And we have this way of thinking that we are going to compartmentalize our faith. But I'll go back to what I said in the beginning. If the gospel doesn't impact all your relationships, it's an incomplete version of the gospel. Uh, Francis Folk said it this way. He's a theologian. He said it this way. It is a heresy of our times to divide life into sacred and secular. Church, what I want us to embrace this morning as we think about the master's plan is this. The master's plan was never something to be occupied one day a week. It was designed for us to embrace fully so that we would be wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ so that the way we work and the way we play and the way we parent and the way we go to work and the way we interact with others would all be impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the heresy of our times, Francis Folk says, to divide life into sacred and secular. In other words, it is, it is contrary to the gospel to have relationships where the gospel isn't impacted. So if you have friendships in your life and they don't know you're following Christ, you're living an incomplete version of the gospel. If there are people that you closely associate with at work and they have no knowledge of your desire to be a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ, that's an incomplete version of the gospel. 
And God's design, his master plan, is that every one of our relationships would be impacted by the gospel. This is the work of God the Father, God the Son, and now God the Holy Spirit. We come to verse 13, and we have some deep theological words that are used by Paul in this beautiful poem. We come to verse 13, and he says this, You also were included in Christ. Can we just say amen right there? You were included in Christ. What Paul is writing to is a group of believers who were both Jewish, some of them, and some of them were Greek. And so what Paul is saying is some of you came to Christ because uh, you were included because you were Jewish, but others you are included because you're non-Jewish. And what he's saying is in the same breath, we both are included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. What is he talking about there? Well, he's talking about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives acts as a seal which indicates ownership and a guarantee of our inheritance. You see, the seal is the Holy Spirit himself and his presence denotes both ownership and security. The sealing is not an empty feeling. It's not something mysterious. It's part of the redemption transaction. He goes on to say, verse 14, talking about the Holy Spirit, he goes on to say this, He is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. You see that word guarantee there in verse 14 denotes a down payment. It's used only in the New Testament in reference to the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying is this Holy Spirit is our own down payment of our coming glory, our presence with Christ. Nothing else is provided or needed because once you believe, we are sealed by that Holy Spirit. This is the master's plan. The master's plan was always to have a family of adopted and restored human beings who are unified in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. What's life all about? Well, it's about being part of a, a family of adopted and restored human beings who are now unified in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. What Paul's, the, the beauty of Paul's message is, is Paul was able to experience what it looked like for he himself to be adopted in God's family. You remember the story of Paul before he was Paul. He was Saul. And as a Saul, as Saul, he was passionate. He was a zealot. He knew the law inside and out. He was from the right tribe, from the right family, had all the right training. Uh, He even goes as far to say in Scripture, if anyone could boast about keeping the law, that'd be me. Paul understood what it was to follow the, the rules to the letter of the law. And yet Paul, in his own passion, became blinded by what he was chasing and ended up being persecuting those who were honestly following the faith of, faith of Christ. And in his own life, Paul saw what it looked like for him to go down a path of, of persecuting followers, even consenting to the death of people. 
And in his own life, Paul understood what it would look like to be outside the family of God. And then we get to that lovely chapter in Acts where Paul is on the road to Damascus and Paul himself is being blinded by the light. And in that moment, he meets Jesus face to face. And in that moment, he recognizes his own sin. He recognizes his own depravity. And might I say, there was no peace in Paul's life until that moment. You think about all that Paul had gone through in far as teaching and understanding the law and all that he had gone through in persecuting people and consenting to people's death and going house to house, the Bible shares, uh, breathing threatenings to all of God's followers. That was not a life of peace. Why? Because he had not experienced the grace of God yet. And there he comes on the road to Damascus and Paul experiences the grace of God. And the experience of grace of God did this for his life. It showed him who he really was. Remember we talked about the law last week on Easter Sunday. How that the law simply acts as a mirror. It reflects to us who we really all are. And when Paul was shown who he really was, he recognizes his own sin, his own brokenness. And he called out to his Savior. And in that moment, when he experienced the grace of God, what follows afterward for Paul is this life of peace. Now, mind you, I didn't say a life of ease. I think we know the story. Paul, Paul went through the worst of the worst. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was left for dead. He was abandoned. He was, yeah, it wasn't a life of ease, but it was a life of peace because he had experienced the grace of God. And so what the master's plan really is for us is being part of a family of adopted and restored human beings. First of all, have you been adopted into the family of God? Maybe you're here this morning and you joined us last week for Easter and so now you're joining us for this study. What does it look like to be adopted into the family of God? It simply means recognizing this, that we are broken and in need of a Savior. We have looked law in the face and we have recognized that we do not measure up. We know that we can never earn our way to heaven. We can never pay our way to heaven. In fact, we have come short, woefully short of the glory of God. And as we recognize our need for a Savior, this is how we get adopted. This is how we become a part of the family of God. And the beautiful thing about this adoption is this. Once you come into the family of God, we leave behind every remnant of our old life. We're no longer bound to the sin and the guilt and the shame of our old life because we press on into the family of God. So we become a part of the family of adopted but also restored human beings who are unified in Christ Jesus. I want you to look at the last verse of our text this morning. Verse 14. It says this. The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. That's, that's us he's talking about. To the praise of his glory. The Spirit is God's guarantee that He will give us this inheritance He promised and that He has purchased us to be His own people and He did this so we would praise and glorify Him. What we'll read next week in verses 15 to the end of chapter 1 
is Paul has a very specific prayer now. He has a very specific prayer for everyone who's followed Jesus Christ, and we'll unpack that next week. But for this week, I want us to rest on this thought. The master's plan was always to have a family of adopted and restored human beings who are unified in Christ Jesus the Messiah. And the only way we experience the peace of God is by first experiencing the grace of God. Can I pray for you this morning? Would you bow this morning? The master's plan was always to have a family of adopted and restored human beings who are unified in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This morning, as our heads are bowed, it just gives you a time to reflect on what we've talked about from Ephesians chapter 1 as we think about the master's plan and how God and the gospel intersect with our life and First and foremost, receiving God's grace comes before experiencing God's peace. Boy, if you're here today and you say, Daniel, I've never experienced the peace of God. I've tried and I've searched and I've, I've tried to live up to all the things I know about God so I could experience this peace that God has for us, but I've never been able to do so. Might I tell you, first, it requires experiencing God's grace. You need to have your road to Damascus moment. You need to have that moment in your life where God shows up and he shows himself to be the son of God. Where Jesus himself proclaims, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you yourself need to come to a point where you have embraced Jesus for who he is. We'll talk about it in the next couple weeks, but Ephesians 2 says this, by the grace of God we are saved not of our own works otherwise we would boast it is the gift of God and once we've experienced the grace of God we then now can pursue and live in the peace of God oh child of God we're made for so much more because we're made in the image of God if you're listening to this and you've never made a decision of Christ and you feel God tugging on your heart, might I remind you anyone can be adopted into the family of God. Because his master plan not only includes salvation, but this, this transformation that happens in our hearts, that we would have a confident relationship in him. If you're here today and you've accepted Christ and maybe this is your church home or you're watching online and you've already come to the place where you've experienced the grace of God and you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me that over the next few weeks, God would speak specifically to you about his master plan in your life? Where we wouldn't separate our lives from sacred to secular, but we would pursue God wholeheartedly that we would be this family of adopted and restored human beings unified in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Boy, if God's tugging at your heart, I'd encourage you. Make your decision for him. Choose Christ this morning. Our worship team's gonna come forward as I pray. Heavenly Father, we are, we are incredibly grateful Father, I pray a day of our life would never go by where we wouldn't think about the enormity of what you have done for us. 
that we every single day of our lives would make much of what Jesus has done in our life. That when we think about our lives and we think about what you did on Calvary's cross, that we would make much of what you have done for us. And in doing so, our faith would be rooted in this spirit of thanksgiving. And then, Lord, you've left us here on this earth as a part of this adopted, restored group of people. And so you have created us for so much more. So, Father, I pray that the gospel would impact every one of our relationships, that we would examine them, that we would think about our spouses and our families differently, that we would think about our Mondays and our Tuesdays differently because of the gospel, and that the gospel wouldn't be a Sunday-only occasion, but that the gospel would impact every part of our life. And I believe with all of my heart, boy, if, if just a handful of us would, would, would be wholehearted followers of you, that Douglas County would be turned upside down for the cause of Christ. That people would be transformed with these confident relationships in you. So Father, I pray for those who need to make a decision for Christ. I pray that maybe the person they're sitting with, that they would reach out to them or maybe on the way home and say, man, I need to experience the peace of God. Will you show me what that looks like? Give people the courage and the confidence to reach out. Father, I pray that as your people, that our relationships would be impacted by the gospel. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.